Wondering what to get that special someone for Christmas? You can find a ton of delicious and easy baking mixes on merrymacpodcast.com slash store, as well as an assortment of dip mixes that are a great addition to any holiday party. Free shipping when you spend $50 or more. Go to merrymacpodcast.com slash store for a gift that's practical, but not socks or underwear. Hello, and welcome to the 100th episode of In the Kitchen with Mary Mack. <laughs> As always, Anna and I are here to bring you a fabulous and informational podcast. This is our 100th episode. Can you even believe it? We're in triple digits now. Triple digits. Oh, my gosh. And you'd think we'd run out of things to talk about, but no, because there's so much food. It's true. We picked a good topic for a podcast. Yes, very it's really good. Unlimited. Very good. <laughs> At the end of this podcast, I'm going to give you a really weird recipe too. So that'll be fun. So, uh, what we decided to do for our 100th episode, everybody always tries, you know, if you listen to podcasts at all, that's when you get to these, um, what do you call that? Like a, a milestone? Uh, milestone. Yes, a milestone. When you hit a milestone like your 100th episode, people try to do something really special and epic and all that. So we borrowed Aaron Kleiber's air horn for ours. And <laughs> <laughs> that's our big special epic that's thing. It. It's just the sound effect. <laughs> Business as usual Business now. Business as usual. So um, what we did, we asked people if they had any questions for us. And we put that out on our social media and stuff. And we got... A couple of questions, and they all have the same, <laughs> they were all kind of the same question. This is the basic question. When you're baking from scratch, people wanted to know how they can make their scratch cakes, cupcakes, muffins, etc. more moist and tender. And the one person particularly was trying to make a cake recipe that kept coming out really dry, and it was from scratch. And then another person had a muffin that she was making, the same problem. So... I'm going to go through a bunch of tips here that hopefully will be helpful to you. Things that I've kind of figured out over my uh, illustrious career. I was going to say expansive career, but illustrious is good. I'll take illustrious. <laughs> I'll take illustrious for a thousand, Alex. But, <laughs> um, but over my uh, trial and error of baking and cooking and whatnot, uh, I I notice things and try to keep track of them and stuff like that. And, and it... There's a lot of things that are different, especially in the products that you're able to buy at the grocery store anymore. So, you know, there's a lot of things happening. I was actually asked recently, I'm sure many of you know that uh, Robin Hood flour is no longer being produced. And I believe I did say that on my podcast a while back, but the Smuckers company owned the Robin Hood flour name and made the flour and for whatever reason, decided they weren't going to make it anymore. And Robin Hood was the go-to flower for a lot of people. And the funny thing is, I mean, and I'm sure with most people, most people probably don't bake really regularly until it gets up to a holiday like Thanksgiving or Christmas. They might not notice that Robin Hood flower doesn't exist anymore until they go to the grocery store like my friend Debbie and said, hey, I can't find Robin Hood flower. What happened to it? So I let her know that they discontinued it. And the substitute that I found right now that I've been using, and I, I've been wanting to make the switch for a long time to unbleached flour, and I do use unbleached flour in my mixes, but not I wasn't using it in my baking. I was using um, Robin Hood flour. Well, 
I've tried several different brands of flour, store brand flours and whatnot. And what I found that seems to me to be the most similar acting flour and produces a similar finished product to what I was familiar with with Robin Hood is Bob's Red Mill all-purpose flour. And it's an unbleached flour. There's a regular unbleached and an organic unbleached from Bob's that are both all-purpose flours. You can use whichever one you like because they both seem to perform the same. But if you're looking for a flour that performs in a similar way to the Robin Hood, I would definitely seek out the Bob's Red Mill all-purpose flour. So I'm going to start my tips now that I told you that. Tip number one, um, that's the best substitute for the Robin Hood flour is the Bob's Red Mill. The second place substitute for Robin Hood flour is it, it would be the gold metal unbleached flour. And I don't like as well as Bob's Red Mill, but it's still good. It's still better. So those are my two picks. Now for some tips, if you have, uh, if you're baking with flour, you should always lighten your flour before you start, before you start measuring, before you start using it. And what I do typically, I have a large flour container and, um, I usually have about 25 pounds of flour in it, you know, but I'm sure you don't at home. The flour comes in a five-pound bag. Flour gets compacted really easily. So imagine your flour is shrink-wrapped together on a pallet, so that compacts it. And then it's bouncing on a truck to the store, and that compacts it. So when you take your flour home from the store and you're going to use your flour, first of all, I don't recommend using flour directly out of the bag and storing it in the bag. Very bad idea. Always get yourself a container to store your flour in. Glass container, plastic container, whatever you want. But get yourself a nice flour container to keep your flour in. And then when you're going to, when you get a new bag of flour and you're putting it into your container, open your flour up, pour it in there, and then get a large spoon. It can be a regular large spoon or a large spoon with holes or slots in it. And stir your flour around, like turn it over, pull it up out of the bottom, lift it up and fluff it up. And you'll notice, I think it's King Arthur Flour is the one that says, if you lighten your flour, it'll increase by volume like an extra cup or two of flour when it's compacted, which is kind of amazing when you think about it. But that's true because it is it is so pressed together sometimes that... Um, you know, when you, you want to scoop it up, you want it to be nice and light and fluffy when you scoop it up. You don't want to have to plow through it like you're making a sandcastle. You know, you want it to be, you want it to be nice and, and loose. So always make sure you lighten your flour. That's the biggest thing because what happens is if you, if you take a five pound bag of flour, there's usually 15 cups of flour in a five pound bag. Okay. If you didn't lighten your flour and you, you were using it right out of the bag or pouring it into a container and not lightening it, you might measure one cup of flour and it's actually like a cup and an eighth of flour. So if you're, if you're making a cake that calls for like two and a half or three cups of flour, that's like an extra half cup of flour that you're putting in because your flour is compacted. So you always want to lighten that. Another thing to do, this is particularly with pastry and cookies like pie crusts, not like a drop cookie, like a chocolate chip cookie, but if you're making a more delicate kind of a cookie, what you want to do is lighten your flour and then scoop your flour out of the container and pour it into the cup. 
Because even scooping your flour out of your container with your measuring cup will compact it. So especially on pie crusts, because you want your pie crust to be very light. So that's another little tip. Measure uh, measure your flour by scooping it into your cup instead of scooping your flour with your cup. Okay? And those are two very helpful things. And that really would probably solve mostly everyone's problem about making uh, your baked goods more tender. Here's another thing I've noticed. Eggs, just like clothing, <laughs> much like clothing, egg sizes seems to have changed. And I'm not sure if there was a, if there's a standard egg size and it was and that was changed or I don't know, I don't know. But now it seems like when you buy large eggs, they're smaller than they used to be in the container. And a lot of times, even the eggs in your carton, if you look at the eggs in your carton, they're not even all close to the same size. As a matter of fact, I just bought a carton of extra large eggs and I had like four eggs that were definitely not extra large eggs in that carton. So when you're baking something, and again, I wouldn't worry about this that much with like a drop cookie or brownies or something like that. But when you're making a cake where you need to get a good rise, make sure your eggs are all the same size that you're using out of your carton. Um, if your recipe calls, uh, I, actually what I've been doing, most recipes typically call for a large egg. I've been buying extra large now because I've noticed that the extra large vary in size so much that I'll just use the smaller ones in the carton and they seem to work better. Now, sometimes you might get like really enormous eggs, especially if you get local eggs, you know, eggs from your neighbor, eggs from your brother, whatever. Sometimes they're really big. So you want to watch that, especially if you're baking something. I mean, if you're doing something for yourself and you're not too worried about it, but if you're making something special, you want to make sure that your eggs are a uniform size. And like, for example, if you have one really small egg, you can pair it off with another slightly larger egg and kind of, you know, balance out the volume of eggs. But try to pay attention to that because that's something that I've noticed is really, I don't know, it's like an odd thing that I've noticed. And it, it just seems to me like the egg sizes are, the, the eggs are getting smaller, I guess you would say. So... So keep an eye on your eggs. Next, be careful measuring your liquids. You should always use a liquid measuring cup to measure liquids. I know we're all tempted to just use grab a half cup and, you know, measure a half cup, but it's not quite the same measurement. Sometimes you can get more of a liquid because the, uh, the liquids will tend to um, round up, even though you don't think they really are. They will tend to round up over the top of the cup because of the, what is that called? It's, it's, it'll come to me. Surface tension. Because of the surface tension of liquid will allow it to round up over the top. So you might have a little more liquid. Or you might not, you might be worried about spilling over and put less in. So it, it can make a difference. Um, and when you measure liquids, you want to hold the measuring cup up in front of your face so that it's at eye level and try to hold it level. Oh, so I thought you should put it on a flat surface well, and then like kneel down to look at it so it's definitely level. That's one of the things they tell you to do to put it on a flat surface. But how level are our houses? I don't know. That's true. That's a fair point. I live in an old house and I can tell you that it ain't level. <laughs> okay, so what you want to do is go to the hardware store, buy a level... Put it on the bottom of your liquid <laughs> measuring cups as you hold it up. <laughs> Build a platform that you can level with your level. But try to try to make it as level as you can. Um, and that's a good thing to do. And also, same thing with uh, measuring liquids and teaspoons and stuff. Try to 
try to, you know what the classic thing is with me is I'll go to put like vanilla in something and I'll over pour it and it just shoots out of the spoon and, you know, so you have way too much vanilla. So, you know, if you're, if you're doing a recipe that's more sensitive or particular, you want to be very particular with your liquids and your liquid measures. Here's another one. Check your oven temperature regularly, and I bet nobody ever thinks of that. But oven temperatures, I don't know. Some ovens are crazy, you know, and they, they um, oven temperatures vary a lot, which is when I give out a recipe, I usually tell people, you know, bake it at 350 degrees, but your oven is going to vary. So, mm-hmm. you know, your oven may be hot or cold or whatever. But you can pick up an oven thermometer for like between three and six dollars, just a it's it's a regular uh, dial thermometer, and you just set it in your oven. And actually, you can leave them in there. I have one that's been in my oven since I moved in. Yeah, you you can just leave it in there. And what you do is the the easiest way to do this is if you're planning on making something. I, I hate to waste energy, so don't just do it. But if you're going to be baking something. Put, put your oven on whatever temperature, say 350 degrees, have your thermometer in there, turn your oven on, and then check it. When, when your oven beeps and says it's at temperature, look at your temperature gauge and then wait about five more minutes and look at it again and see what your temperature is. So that, this way you can tell if your oven temperature is off and then you'll know, well, you know, when, when my oven says it's at 350, it's really at 325. So I need to plan for that. But you always want to keep that thermometer in there if your oven's off, because you don't want to guess that your oven is going to be 25 degrees off every single time. You want to know. So that's another one. And it's a pretty easy fix. Would you also like to know another fantastic use of oven thermometers? Yes. If you don't have a fancy oven that tells you like how warm the oven is getting while it's preheating, just stick an oven thermometer in there, and then whenever you just are like getting impatient about, oh my god, is the oven preheated yet? You can just open the oven door and see, oh, we're about 50 degrees away. <laughs> That's a good suggestion. Good idea. Thank you. I have a good idea every so often. Every, every little now and again. <laughs> okay, and this is a classic one. Check your dates on stuff. You know, check your expiration dates or best buy dates. Now, I want to say... Best buy date and expiration date are two very different things. So you can have a cake that says best buy a certain date and you can still use that cake mix if it's not like eight years old or something, you know. It may not rise as well, but you can still use it. On the other hand, if your mayonnaise says, (laughs) if your mayonnaise is past date, don't use that. But um, on baked goods, not on baked goods, I'm sorry, on baking supplies, there's a lot of things that, that, matter and a lot of things that don't matter. So for example, if your yeast is past date, it's not going to work. It's really not going to work. And you can just flush it down the commode because it's actually, it it isn't going to hurt anything and it's probably, you know, it might feed an alligator. So that's a good thing to do. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Pro tip. Always feed the sewer alligators. Pro tip. (laughs) Sewer alligators love old yeast. (laughs) So, you know, don't do that. Now, baking soda does not go past date, okay? It might get hard and clumpy, but it's still going to work. So if your baking soda is old and it's hard and clumpy, um, what I typically do with it is I have a set of very nice strainers that I got, a a variety of sizes of strainers and I'll put the baking soda in it and press it through there and turn it back into powder because it does get hard, you know, 
but it still works. Baking powder can lose its zip too. So you should watch the date on your baking powder, but baking soda is usually pretty good. And like I said, if you have a cake mix or a muffin mix or something that's past date, that's not real far past, you know, if it's say it's Mm -hmm. like three months past and you just want to use it, you don't want to waste it, mix it up and then put a teaspoon of good baking powder in it. And that will lift it back up again because that's what goes bad in there. Nothing else really goes bad as far as baking wise. Now, if it's a really old cake mix or a pancake mix that has shortening in it, it can actually turn rancid. So use your nose. If you smell it and it doesn't smell good, compost it. Okay. Now, if you're going to do a big bake, like if you're planning on making holiday cookies or cookies for a wedding or something like that, make sure you have everything you need before you start. There's nothing like getting ready to do a bake and realizing that you're out of something like vanilla or salt. Or being mid-bake and realizing you don't have something, which I have done on multiple occasions. Yeah, so just take an inventory of your pantry, which I try to do that like about, I don't know, I don't want to say once a month. And I do bake a lot, but... You know, get in there and take an inventory of your uh, spices, of your food coloring, vanilla, things like that, salt that you might need. Take an inventory of it. Make sure it's good. Whatever you have in there is good and still smells good. And, you know, your flavorings, um, that sort of thing. Just just make sure you have what you need. Okay, and now we're going to talk about substitutions, which we've been wanting to do a podcast on substitutions for quite some time. And people always ask me about that. So I just wanted to do some substitutions really quick because this is another question that I get all the time. What can I use instead of, or if I don't have or whatever. So there's a lot of things available right now in the market and it's kind of exciting to see the vegan diet is getting very popular, but that's a big bonus for people who don't tolerate or are allergic to dairy products or eggs. Um, And that sort of thing, because, you know, those people were left out in the cold for a long time. They didn't have a lot of substitutes for things. So I'll just run through. And I realize I've done this in other podcasts, said things that are good substitutes. So we'll just go over those real quick. For baking or cooking, I love Ripple, which is a milk product made from peas, the vegetable peas. I know I call it pea milk and I get in trouble for that, but that's what it is. (laughs) So unsweetened Ripple. Works great in baking and cooking. It's great for cream soups, baked goods, mashed potatoes, sauces, mac and cheese, things like that if you don't want to use milk. I've also used almond milk in some baked goods like muffins or cakes, you know, but you do get that almond flavor. Almond milk is not good for cooking. I have tried it in cream soups as a substitute and mashed potatoes, and you definitely get that almond flavor, which is not good in those things. Cheese substitutes. If you like mac and cheese, and we did a mac and cheese episode um, on here, which we'll probably be doing uh, a uh, dairy-free mac and cheese soon. But there's a company called Follow Your Heart, which makes the best dairy-free cheese products that I've found. As far as sliced cheeses, very, very good. They melt good. They taste good. Very good product. They make Cream cheese also, they make a nice cream cheese product for unbaked cream cheese pies, uh, that kind of thing. Um, Ricotta cheese. We did a podcast on how to make your own ricotta cheese, which is very simple. And you can listen to our podcast and look at our podcast list on the website, merrymacpodcast.com, and you'll see where we made ricotta cheese. It was in the episode 70-something. 
But Kite Hill is a company that makes a really good ricotta cheese substitute. It's very nice if you have a dairy allergy or something like that, or you're vegan and you want a good one. That's a good one. Now, I did an episode of Stuffed Shelves, and I told you how to use tofu to make a ricotta substitute, which works really well when you do it the way I tell you. So that's an option, too. You can, you know, you can use the tofu or you can use the Kite Hill, whatever, but that's a great substitute for ricotta. Eggs. There are so many egg substitutes on the market anymore. It's ridiculous. Bob's Red Mill makes one that's really great for baking. There's a company called Just that makes a very nice egg substitute for actually cooking like scrambled eggs and stuff like that. And it's also pretty good for baking. Just makes uh, mayonnaise too that's really good for, you know, mayonnaise products. But if you don't have an egg and you need a substitute emergency egg, for example, you can use one teaspoon of baking soda and one teaspoon of white vinegar in your recipe. I share a recipe on the podcast that is a cake. Well, there's two res- two podcasts that have cakes that use the baking soda and vinegar for the rise. And the one is called the Real Crazy Cake. That's a fun one to do with kids because it's like a science experiment. So that's a really good one to do with your kids. And the other one is, I, I can't remember which one. Uh, it's a It has like strawberry shortcake and a couple different ones, but that's a cake recipe also that uses. Is that the one where you talk about the like pumped up box cake? I think so. I know we talked about using applesauce instead of eggs as well. Yeah, right, right. We're getting applesauce is our next one on the list, too. Applesauce is the... I can't say it. I said sauce. I said applesauce. Salsa. What? Applesauce in your cakes. <laughs> applesauce is the ultimate substitution item. It is great. You can use applesauce in place of oil, shortening or butter, or even an egg, and it works with good success in cakes and muffins. It's You can actually even use it in place of sugar if you want to lower the sugar content of something. So if your recipe calls for a cup of milk, a third cup of oil, and one egg, and you didn't have, say you didn't have oil, you could use a third cup of applesauce if you had applesauce, okay? If you didn't have an egg, you could use the milk, the oil, and about a fourth to a third cup of applesauce. I've used one of those little, like, you know, the lunchbox applesauce yes. cups. Right. That's I've done that in place of an egg before, just one of those cups, and it worked great. But the cake was, like, way more moist than it had been before. Right, right. It does. It Applesauce makes it so it makes things very moist, which is why I suggested a lot of times for muffins. If you're making a muffin and you want it, you're worried that it's not going to be moist enough. Put some applesauce in there, even if you add it in extra, because it just does. It really makes everything nice and moist. So it's a it's a it's a very good substitute. The ultimate. It's like the duct tape of substitution foods. <laughs> oh. Okay, now we're on holiday baking, so I wanted to go over again how to melt chocolate. Um, We've talked about this before in a few podcasts, but Mary Berry says chocolate will melt in a child's hand, which is to say that chocolate melts really easily at a low temperature. I am not a huge fan of melting chocolate in the microwave, but sometimes it's a necessary evil. I mean, if you got to do it, you got to do it. So if you want to melt chocolate in the microwave, go in 15-second intervals and use a glass bowl. Because the glass will warm up as you microwave the chocolate, and it will also help to melt the chocolate. 
So what I typically do is I'll hit 15 seconds on the microwave, take a look, 15 seconds, take a look. And once it starts to melt, I'll stir it and do it one more time. Then I'll take it out and just let the hot bowl finish melting the chocolate and stir it every now and again. And usually in about 45 seconds to a minute, it's melted. If you have like, say you have like a cup of chocolate chips. I prefer to put a glass bowl over a pan of warm water, like 120 to 140 degree water, and let the chocolate melt, you know, while you're doing something else. So you can warm your water up in a pan, set your chocolate in a bowl on top of it, and then go do whatever else you're going to do. And one more substitute, sugar. If you're trying to cut down on sugar, or you don't want to use sugar at all, there's a few substitutes you can do that are definitely better for you and also can enhance the flavor of whatever you're making. So if you don't want to use white sugar, you can use raw sugar, which is still sugar. You can use honey, which is still sugar, or you can use maple syrup, which is still sugar, but it's not white processed sugar. So honey and maple syrup are really good substitutes for regular white sugar. And raw sugar is a good substitute too, because it has some of the minerals left in the sugar. So it's actually, you know, a little bit better for you. There's so many sugar substitutes out there though. I mean, it's like a whole new ball game. I've had the best success in baking with equal brand sweetener because it doesn't seem to have a weird, um, overly sweet or aftertaste when you use it. You still have to play with the amount that you need, but it seems to work pretty well. Um, And this is another place where applesauce shines. Like I said before, you can use applesauce instead of sugar at all. And that really helps, especially like in cakes and muffins and cupcakes. You can also use concentrated apple juice in place of sugar for some applications. Like, for example, um, I do have a pie recipe that will be coming up soon that is a sugar-free apple pie that uses concentrated apple juice in place of sugar for your sweetener in the pie. And it's it seems to be about a half a cup of concentrated apple juice equals about one cup of sugar in sweetness when you're using it in cooking. It's hard for baking. Um, I have a jam recipe also that uses apple juice, and it's kind of hard to use it in baking because it's just so much moisture. But it works really nice for things like that. So that's about that's about what we have for all of our tips and stuff. And we've covered so many topics over the last 99 podcasts that I'm sure if you want to know how to do something or how to make something, it's probably in there somewhere. So just go through my list and look and see what's what's available. Now for the end, I know this is a longer podcast than normal and I do apologize. We're in triple digits. Let's see if we can get to triple digits in time. 100 minutes. 100 minutes. Ah, They'll all be shutting it off. Okay, well, one of my favorite podcasts, I have a lot of podcasts that I listen to. I have many, many favorites. Um, but one of them is the Judge John Hodgman podcast, which is always interesting and funny and entertaining. And I was listening to it the other day. And um, at the beginning of the uh, he it's a it's an Internet court. OK. And he judges people's disputes in a humorous way. I refer to it as a relationship counseling podcast more than anything. But Anyway, he has a question at the beginning. If you can if you can answer the question or if you can figure out the obscure cultural reference, then you automatically win, right? So the um I was listening to a podcast where there was a dispute about uh tomatoes and 
he gave his obscure cultural reference, and I'm listening to it, and I'm like, I know what he's talking about. I know what it is. It's a tomato cake. It's a tomato soup. No, I'm sorry. It's a tomato soup cake. A tomato soup cake. It's a tomato soup cake. Um, the reason I know this is because many years ago, my friend's aunt passed away, and she inherited this big metal um, recipe box, literally crammed full of recipes, okay? So we decided to sit down and sort these recipes out and see if there were any good ones in there. So like two-thirds of the recipes in this box were for <laughs> were lime jello compilations with cabbage mayonnaise celery oh, oh they why? were they were like jealous out they were it was uh, so anyway we got rid of those ones pretty quick and then um the rest of them were like uh weird cake and casserole recipes and the two weird cakes that stood out to me were one was called a seven up cake which was made with seven up pop which must have been very very popular like in the 50s and 60s the other cake which, and I'm not kidding when I say this, I'm, I'm really not exaggerating. There were at least 20 or 25 recipe cards, things cut off of a soup can label, things cut out of a magazine for this tomato soup cake. And we were like cracking up because honest to goodness, in this whole recipe box, there were no recipes that we wanted. <laughs> so, <laughs> there, there had to be 2,000 recipes in there and we didn't want any of them. So I remembered seeing that. And when I, as soon as he's just, he's, he's saying, uh, John Hodgman was reading a quote from a book and he's reading it and I'm going, this is a tomato soup cake. So here I, I discovered that what he was reading came from a book called How to Cook a Wolf by M.F.K. Fisher. And it's a book that was written in 1942 and it was written by um, M.F.K. Fisher was an author who she she did a lot of cookbooks, but she more wrote like a fabulous, fabulous writing style. So her cookbooks are like a book that had recipes in it, not a cookbook. Okay. So this particular recipe, uh, the idea of how to cook a wolf was, you know, when you're on the brink of starvation, they, they call that, the saying is, there's a wolf at the door. And it comes, it, it dates back to like the 14 and 1500s, where people would talk, uh, use that to be, you're on the brink of poverty or on the brink of hunger. There's a wolf at the door ready to bust in and, you know, pretty much eat you up. So she made this cookbook during World War II. And her idea was to teach people to live as decently as possible with ration card shortages and the miseries of World War II. So she came up with these recipes, basically using what you had in the house to make something good. And I know a lot of us do that now, but, you know, you would never think of it in, in this, like desperate times call for desperate actions. And I, a lot of people have been through desperate times. And so uh, this cake is, it's actually good. I just made one. <laughs> really? <laughs> yeah. It's, it's, it's like a, it's a spice cake. And oddly enough, um, this is, this would be a fun cake to do with kids, even if they didn't really like it, to eat it. Because the really cool thing is when you make this, the tomato soup like explodes. It's really awesome. So I'm going to give you the recipe and uh, you can even look it up online and read a little bit about MFK Fisher. She's a very interesting person, very, very prolific in her writing. Very interesting person. This is the tomato soup cake recipe from 1942. And you use, and, and remember now you use what you have here. So if you, you know. And I think this cake would be very forgiving so that if you didn't have much, you could still make a cake. 
So three tablespoons of butter or shortening, one cup of sugar, and you're going to cream those together, one teaspoon of baking soda, one can of tomato soup, two cups of flour, one teaspoon of cinnamon, one teaspoon of nutmeg, ginger, and cloves mixed. So that's one teaspoon of all of those mixed together. And then one and a half cups of raisins or nuts or chopped figs or dates or whatever you have. She says, what you will. So basically, it's whatever you got to throw in there. So you cream the butter, add the sugar to it, and blend that thoroughly. Take the tomato soup. I learned this. I, I read the recipe and didn't do what I thought I should have done. But take your tomato soup and dump it into a large bowl, like maybe a two-quart size bowl. And then take that teaspoon of baking soda and put it in and whisk it into your tomato soup really well. And watch what happens. It's very exciting. I, unfortunately, put my teaspoon of baking soda right into the can of tomato soup and created a volcano over top of my dry ingredients. And just, yeah, it was pretty. And I was laughing because I said, I knew this was going to happen. Why didn't I put my tomato soup in a bowl? So whip up that. And then take your dry ingredients, which would be your two cups of flour, add your teaspoon of cinnamon, and then add your mixed teaspoon of nutmeg, ginger, and cloves. If you don't like one of those things, I know a lot of people don't like cloves, but you know you can leave them out or use what you have, as was her intention with this recipe. And then uh, the one and a half cups, I had raisins, I had currants, raisins, and craisins, dried cranberries, so that's what I used in mine to equal the one and a half cups. And I always, when I use um, dried fruit in anything, I put the dried fruit into a bowl and then I cover it with boiling water and let it sit for 15 minutes so that it can kind of uh, soften up a bit. And then I drain that liquid off. So basically you mix all these things together and then you pour them into a loaf pan or a small cake pan and bake them at, um, she says 325. I would jack it up to 350. And bake it at uh, 350 for about a half hour to 40 minutes. And what comes out is a really aromatic spice cake, which is very good. And you get this little whiff of tomato soup while it's baking, which I thought was kind of funny. But you don't taste the tomato soup in it when it's done. And what's odd is you kind of, it takes you a while to figure out what the flavor is in the cake. It looks like if you've ever baked a cake with pumpkin. It looks kind of like that. It's a very dark orange colored cake. Very good and very weird, which if you listen to my podcast, you'll know I like weird recipes. So that is your bonus Christmas recipe for the 100th episode of In the Kitchen with Mary Mack. So while your kids are off school over the holidays, I suggest you try that with them because I think they'll have a lot of fun watching that tomato soup just Vulcan, I, well, what's the word for that? Erupt. <laughs> I was going to say vulcanize, but that's a completely different thing. <laughs> and make sure to check us out on social media on Facebook and Instagram at Mary Mac Bakehouse, on Twitter at Mary Mac Podcast and Mobile Mary Mac, and on our newly redesigned website, MaryMacPodcast.com. Really and honestly, from the bottom of our hearts, Thank you so much for listening, if you do. And if you don't, too bad for you, and Merry Christmas, Happy New Year, Happy Holidays. We love you all.